Genesis chapter 1. Today our text is found in verses 6 through 8. Let me read that to you and then we will pray. For today we are dealing with the second day of creation. And God said, Let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament, and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. And God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. Shall we pray? Our Father and our God, we ask for the blessing and anointing of your Holy Spirit upon each and every person that is in this room today. Fill us, O God, with your Spirit. Grant us, Lord, your wisdom and understanding. We thank you for the foundation that the book of Genesis is for us to understand and to know your word, the doctrines, the teachings that we have learned over the many years, Lord God, that we have read and studied your word, could not be possible without this first book. Our desire, Lord, is is to truly understand all that you have for us in the book of Genesis, not only in the creation account, but certainly, Lord, the account of redemption after the fall of man. For even today we still deal with that issue greatly. So we thank you and we bless you for the opportunity, Lord, to be able to study your word to the effect of our being able to stand upon it and its truth with confidence, knowing, Lord, that your word is ever true and always will it be for us light and life. We thank you for this now in Jesus' name. Amen. And amen. Well, I first of all have to say that um, in the past three weeks, which uh, we have had as our introduction to the book of Genesis, that uh, we have made many comparisons and contrasts uh, between creationism and evolution. And we have listened to the voices of the evolutionists the atheists, as well as the voices of many creationists, scientists in either and or, or either or camps. Uh, today, I want to kind of leave that a little bit behind. And if you haven't uh, been with us uh, in any of these past three weeks, I, I would encourage you, if you're interested in, in ordering the CDs, so that you can kind of get caught up with where we are and where we've been. But as we make our way through the first chapter of the book of Genesis, I I will be adding uh, necessary thoughts and uh, clear basic additions to our lessons to enhance our understanding of Genesis in general and creation in particular as we go through this first chapter. And by this, fill in all the gaps so that nothing is left out of, uh, of our exposition. For example, it is essential and foundational that we believe the Bible must be understood literally, that is, straightforward and true according to its literary context. Now, we need to realize and understand that the Bible is much more than just a book. It is, in fact, a library of books. 
And as you study through each of those books, you can conclude uh, that the books are written in different literary forms. Some books of the Bible give historical accounts, others are poetic, and some are prophetic. And then we must understand the Scriptures literally according then to its literary context. Take, for example, David's statement in Psalm 6, verse 6. David says, I am weary with my groaning at the, uh, all the night to make I my bed to swim. I water my couch with my tears. Now, David used a poetic literary form here so that we understand that he didn't literally cry so much that he flooded his room and set his bed floating. So we understand that. Likewise, when the Bible speaks in a historical narrative, we can understand it as literal history and not some make-believe fables or myths meant only to tell a spiritual story. Now, if we don't start approaching the Scriptures this way, then how will we approach it? I mean, is it up to how anyone feels about the text? Oh, I feel that this might be saying this or it might be saying that. I think that's, this is what it says. As I look at it, I might feel that this is really saying such and such. Well, remember what Peter said about private interpretation. We touched upon this at the beginning of last week's study. Peter in 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 20 and verse 21 says, Knowing this first, that no prophecy of the Scripture is of any private interpretation. For the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. So it isn't of any private interpretation that we hold to these things. Though the teachings of the Bible may have unlimited applications, they only have one true interpretation. By the way, that's God's interpretation. That's our whole desire when we come to open the Bible to, uh, to study it here. We want to know what God's interpretation is. And so we believe that the Bible is not, let's say, a book of science. And yet, where it touches science, it speaks the truth. And as I have suggested before, if the Bible is false in regard to science or other things that we can prove, then we cannot regard it as true or reliable in regard to spiritual matters that we cannot prove. So before we examine our text, let me just say that the Bible would be incomplete and incomprehensible without the book of Genesis, since it sets the stage for the entire drama of redemption, which happens to unfold actually in the rest of the book of Genesis. And nearly all of the important doctrines and the teachings have their foundation in the book of Genesis. Uh, the doctrines of sin, the doctrines of redemption, justification, Jesus Christ, the personality and personhood of God, the kingdom of God, the fall of man, the nation of Israel, the promise of Messiah, and much, much more. The origins of all of these Doctrines and teachings are in the book of Genesis. But now let me ask you a question. Why is the world and society in such disarray? Why is the world and society in such disarray today? Well, the simple answer is that people have abandoned the truth of Genesis. 
People have abandoned the truth of Genesis both outside of the church and even inside of the church. Yesterday I happened to have found a, uh, a website and I don't recommend it to anyone but I'll tell you what it is. It's called AnswersInCreation.org and I thought, well that's interesting, let me look at that. I've heard of Answers in Genesis which is a very good uh, uh, website, AnswersInGenesis.org uh, or .com, I don't know which one. Uh, but this one I know is AnswersInCreation.org so I began to look at it, and, and it tells you right off the bat that, bat that this, is, this is the place where science, uh, science and the Bible are really going to join together. What they should have said was, this is the place where evolution and the Bible are going to be joined together. Because as you read on in the things that, in the things that they write, they will tell you just confidently and, and right out there that uh, when all of these things are hap- were happening, that we are talking about here today in the first chapter of the book of Genesis and what we've already previously studied actually happened 4.5 billion years ago. I said, whoa, really? I went somewhere else. You see, I mean, I don't have to read everything anymore. That told me everything. Their desire is to say, well, somehow we have to kind of bridge the gap here between the theory of evolution and what the Bible says. And so that is telling me that this is a group of theistic evolutionists. They want to believe in God and they want to believe that God had to use billions of years to be able to create the things that the Bible tells us he created in six days. So... This is the reason why I believe that even people in the church have abandoned the truth of Genesis. The fact that Genesis shows us the origins of the universe. It shows us the order and the complexity of the universe. The solar system, the atmosphere and hydrosphere, which we're going to deal with today. The origin of life, uh, that of man and marriage and evil and language and government and cultures and nations and religion. All of these things find their origins in the book of Genesis. Now, the New Testament attests to the importance of the book of Genesis as well, because there are at least 165 passages in Genesis that are either directly quoted or clearly referred to in the, in the New Testament. Many of these quoted more than once. So there are actually over 200 mentions of the book of Genesis in the New Testament. Now, what's really interesting is this. We cannot say that we believe in Jesus if we don't believe the book of Genesis. We cannot say that we believe in Jesus if we don't believe the book of Genesis. How do we know that? Let's listen to it straight from the mouth of Jesus himself. In John chapter 5, verses 46 and 47, Jesus said, For had you believed Moses, you would have believed me. For he wrote of me. But if you believe not his writings, what are his writings? Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. If you believe not his writings, how shall you believe my words? So we cannot say we believe in Jesus if we don't believe the book of Genesis. And so, with all that in mind, let's consider our text for today. Verses 6 through 8. And God said, now remember what we said about that little phrase, and God said. How many times in the first chapter? Ten times. Somebody was listening last week. Ten times, and God said, 
the Ten Commandments of Genesis chapter 1. Every one of them kept by God and by creation. And God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament. And it was so. That's an important phrase too. God said, it was so. And God called the firmament heaven. And the evening and the morning were the second day. Now, from the very first day of creation, Elohim, the name that we see mentioned here in chapter 1 for God... Elohim, the uniplurality of God. Uh, we know it as a triunity, Father, Son, Holy Spirit. But Elohim, the fullness of the Godhead, as it were, established the principle here in the first day of separation. A principle of separation or division. Why do, we, why do we say that? Because not only did he separate the light from the darkness in verse 4, you notice that he divided the light from the darkness, he separated the light from the darkness. Later on in verse 14, he separates the day from the night. But he also separated the waters above from the waters beneath. And this he did on the second 24-hour day of creation. Now I'm going to emphasize that about the days of creation. This is the second 24-hour day of creation. And as we shall see next time, God separated the land from the waters on the third day of creation. By the way, people often wonder how there could have been a day-night cycle for day one through day three, while it wasn't until day four that God created the sun to be the permanent light source for the earth. Well... All it takes for the earth to have a day-night cycle is for the earth to rotate on its axis and for light to come from one direction. That's all that's needed. There was a source of light. It came from one direction. The earth was obviously already in its, in its state of turning and, and, and rotating on its axis as God had created the earth already. On that first day, at least, you know, the materials. But nonetheless, he has it, you know, the, the laws started beginning to happen. And so, all you needed was a light source from one direction. It turns. There you have it. That's why it says, and evening and morning were the first day. Same thing happens on the second day. God called the firmament heaven, and the evening and the morning were the second day. So, the Genesis accounts... Or the Genesis account, I should say, tells us that God created both the earth and the light on day one and that there was a day-night cycle on day one. And so we can logically conclude that the earth was already rotating in space relative to this light source on day one. So, hopefully we've solved that problem. But as the Lord dealt with darkness on day one, by speaking light into existence, light be and light was, on the second day he dealt with disorder. So he has dealt with darkness, now he deals with the disorder by setting order to his creation. And this is a good place for us to introduce the wisdom of God in creation. So I would like for you to consider Proverbs chapter 8. Please turn there in your Bibles to Proverbs chapter 8. 
You know that I'm listening to hear your Bibles turn. Or your pages shuffle. Good. Proverbs 8. And beginning with verse 22, it says, The Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way, before His works of old. Now, when you study the book of Proverbs, and especially chapter 8, you realize that this is the personification of wisdom. So wisdom is speaking, the Lord possessed me in the beginning of His way, before His works of old, giving us an indication of the eternality of the wisdom of God. Verse 23, I was set up from everlasting. So right there, that even strengthens that thought even more. I was set up from everlasting from the beginning or, or ever the earth was. When there were no depths, I was brought forth. When there were no fountains abounding with water. Before the mountains were settled, before the hills was I brought forth. While as yet he had not made the earth, nor the fields, nor the highest part of the dust of the world. Now notice verse 27. When he prepared the heavens, I was there. When he set a compass upon the face of the depth. When he established the clouds above. When he strengthened the fountains of the deep. When he gave to the sea his decree that the water should not pass his commandment. When he appointed the foundations of the earth. Then I was by him as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight. Rejoicing always before him. In this proverb... The voice of wisdom speaks, declaring again its eternality. But central to verses 22 through 26 of Proverbs 8 is the strength of the knowledge of Christ's presence and existence with the Father in eternity past. He talks about the Lord possessing him in the beginning of his way. Uh, being from everlasting, being brought forth at that moment in time when it was necessary to see the wisdom of God uh, active in creation. But in verse 27 now, wisdom describes creation with words that perfectly parallel the Genesis account. When He prepared the heavens, I was there. When He set a compass upon the face of the depth, some translations say when He drew a circle on the face of the deep. Now this is a very interesting thing that we see here. He drew a circle or set a compass on the face of the deep. Now, I don't know about you, but I have seen pictures of the earth from space. How many of you have seen pictures of the earth from space? It sure is round. I've never seen a square earth or even, for that matter, any heavenly body that was square. They're all round. But not round like a pizza. Because a pizza's flat. I'm talking round like a ball. Spheres. It's interesting why we get terms like atmosphere. Hydrosphere. Gee whiz, the Bible is sure smart. circle was drawn in the face of the deep. This is going to uh, be enhanced, at least the understanding of it as we go on. But the compass of the circle on the face of the deep refers to the firmament 
that was created on day two of creation, which established the celestial waters above and the seas beneath with a breathable atmosphere separating them. Now let's also establish, according to this passage from Proverbs, that wisdom is the divine Logos. L-O-G-O-S, Logos. It is the, the Greek word that we find at the very beginning of John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3. Actually, uh, it, it's used all the way down through verse 14. Verse 14, of course, says, And the Word was made flesh. The Logos was made flesh and dwelt among us. So, when we consider that, before we go on to John, I want you to look back at verse 30 again of of Proverbs 3. I'm sorry, Proverbs 8, verse 30. Then I was by him as one brought up with him. And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. Now, the New King James Version says, I was beside him as a master craftsman. That's kind of, you know coming from a different angle than what we see uh, uh, from the basis of the King James Version. But nonetheless, it says, And I was daily his delight, rejoicing always before him. The idea, though, is that we see this harmonizing so well with John chapter 1, verses 1 through 3, that says, In the beginning was the Logos, the Word, and the Word, the Logos, was with God. And the Word was God. The same was in the beginning with God. That's just harmonizing with this particular verse 30. And then it says, All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. So then we see how God's wisdom in Christ, which by the way is our wisdom, if you read 1 Corinthians chapter 1, that tells us that Jesus Christ is our wisdom, how well this again harmonizes in creation. All things were made by Him, and without Him was not anything made that was made. God, in applying His wisdom, was letting us know that He and the Son who Paul tells us is the Creator in Colossians chapter 1, were working in harmony and in concert by His wisdom to create everything that He does out of the materials He created on the first day. Now getting back to the issue of that separation in creation, when it talks about dividing this and dividing that, it's important to know that the first three days of creation were foundational. The first three days of creation were foundational. Because as previously mentioned, on the first day, light was divided from darkness. On the second day, a firmament divided the waters above the earth from the waters below. And then on the third day, the dry land was separated from the sea. And all of this was necessary. Remember, it is foundational. It is a basis for something. All of this was necessary to make the earth habitable. We needed to have the right kind of atmosphere. Needed to have light. Can we live without light? We trust so much in our artificial light. I talked about that a little bit last week. But when God supplies light... There has to be purpose. There has to be reason. But all of this was necessary to make the earth habitable. But the principle of separation 
goes deeper spiritually as well. It was also through Moses that God commanded the nation of Israel to remain separated from the nations around them. You see, every principle that we find in the book of Genesis not only helps us to understand things physically, spiritually, uh, scientifically, I should say, but also spiritually. Exodus 34, beginning at verse 10. And he said, Behold, I make a covenant. God speaking through Moses. Before all thy people I will do marvels, such as have not been done in all the earth, nor in any nation, and all the people among which, are, which thou art shall see the work of the Lord, for it is a terrible thing that I will do with thee. Now, our understanding of the word terrible uh, is quite different than that which is uh, here in, in the King James Version. But, but it's a terrible... In, in other words, it, it, it should bring some sense of awe at what God does. But then verse 11 says, Observe thou that which I command thee this day. Behold, I drive out before thee the Amorite, and the Canaanite, and the Hittite, and the Perizzite, and the Hivite, and the Jebusite. Take heed to thyself, lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, whither thou goest, lest it be for a snare in the midst of thee. But you shall destroy their altars, break their images, and cut down their groves, For thou shalt worship no other God. For the Lord whose name is Jealous is a jealous God. Lest thou make a covenant with the inhabitants of the land, and they go a-whoring after their gods, and do sacrifice unto their gods, and one call thee, and thou eat of his sacrifice, and thou take of their daughters unto thy sons, and their daughters go a-whoring after their gods, and make thy sons go a-whoring after their gods. Thou shalt make thee no molten gods. That's a very tremendously powerful covenant that God is making with the people. You are called to be separate from the world. You are called to be separate from the things of this world, the people of this world, who are not called my people. And obviously when they disobeyed God, and when they violated this commandment, they suffered greatly, didn't they? And you'd think they would have learned their lesson right away. But how long did it take for them? They're they're still learning the lesson today. This shows us the great mercy that God has for the people of Israel. But God's people, including those who are called by the name of Jesus Christ, God's people, the believer in Christ, need to take heed in their walk as well. Because you see, we've been called to be separate from the world. In Psalm 1, verses 1 through 3, the psalmist says, Blessed is the man that walketh not in the counsel of the ungodly, nor standeth in the way of sinners, nor sitteth in the seat of the scornful, but his delight is in the law of the Lord. Could you imagine that if we all began to delight in the Lord's Word more and more each day, that we wouldn't even be thinking about standing in, in, uh, in the way of the sinner or, or <coughs> walking after the counsel of the ungodly or sitting with the scornful. We don't even think about it. Why? Because our hearts are so delighting in the love of God, in the Word of God, in the message of God. It says, But His delight is in the law of the Lord, and in His law does He meditate day and night. 
And he shall be like a tree planted by the rivers of water that bringeth forth his fruit in his season. His leaf also shall not wither, and whatsoever he doeth shall prosper. Everything that we need spiritually as far as the nutrients of life in Christ and in God are found in God's Word. Paul takes up this very thought as well, at least the thought of separation in Romans 12, verses 1 and 2, when he says, I beseech you therefore, brethren, I beg you, I, I, I implore you, by the mercies of God, that you present your bodies a living sacrifice, holy. Do you see that one word? That one word there means I want you to be set apart, separated Unto God, separated from the world, set apart from the world, and set apart unto God. Holy, acceptable unto God, which is your reasonable service. And be not conformed to this world, but be ye transformed by the renewing of your mind, that you may prove what is that good and acceptable and perfect will of God. The Apostle John, in his first letter to the church, will focus upon this, and he uses as a basis for his statement the very book of Genesis that we're studying, Genesis chapter 3. In John, 1 John 2, verse 15, it says, Love not the world, neither the things that are in the world. If any man love the world, the love of the Father is not in him. For all that is in the world, the lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life, those are the three things that led to the fall of man in Genesis chapter 3. The lust of the flesh, the lust of the eyes, and the pride of life is not of the Father, but is of the world. And the world passes away, and the lust thereof, but he that doeth the will of God abideth forever. When God does things in the Scriptures, and takes things that He does, let's say, on the physical level, or the material level, as He does in creation, and He separates light from darkness, and He separates the waters above from the waters from below and he separates the land from the waters and sets that as a foundation it should remind us there's reasons why God does what he does there's spiritual lessons here if he tells us that we need to be separate from things divided from them it's a good division it's not like the divisions of man in the church today where man doesn't like what he, what he hears in one place and, and divides and takes people out of one church and goes and starts another or does something of that nature. That's division in a bad sense. But when God does things, we ought to take note. Why? Remember that the Bible says here in Genesis 1 that everything that God did was good. Because He's a good God, and everything that He does will ultimately be for good. Even the judgment, and you'll see that in just a moment. Even when judgment occurs, all judgment is for good, because God can do nothing but good. So, with that in mind, let's take a closer look again at our text. And look at verse 6 by itself. God said, and God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters, and let it divide the waters from the waters. Now that word firmament is, is, is a Hebrew, well, the, in the, the Hebrew word itself for firmament is the word rakia, which speaks of something that is spread out or stretched out. You can think of a, a lump of, of, of some kind of dough, you spread it out, let's say, to uh, thin it out as far as you can, uh, and all, uh, here comes that pizza thought again. I don't know what's, what's happening with that with me. I don't know. But, you know, you take the lump and you spread it out and, you know, 
That's that kind of idea. But, but really, it's, it's derived, the word itself is derived from a verb that means to spread an overlay, or to spread an overlay. An example of this verb is used in, in this manner in Exodus chapter 39, verse 3, where it says in the very first phrase, and they did beat the gold into thin plates. That's spreading out because they were doing uh, the things that God had commanded them to do for the tabernacle, but they were to take certain uh, amounts of gold and spread it out and then overlay it onto wood. For example, the uh, Ark of the Covenant, let's say. But the idea is that you beat the gold into thin plates and you spread it out. And so the imagery here is that of a vast expanse. Now the word firmament has been defined by many of your marginal notes Uh, as an expanse. If we want to become more specific, uh, we can look at it as a protective layer that overlays the earth and divides the waters below, which is the sea of water that covered the earth, from the waters above, which could actually refer to atmospheric water, to clouds, uh, uh, water vapor or some kind of vapor canopy that encircled the earth at that time, which must have been just right on the created earth. And it also includes, by the way, the firmament also includes earth's breathable atmosphere. Now, you go to space, you, you go, let's say, even to the moon, our own moon. You can't, you can't just go there like we are sitting here today or standing here today. We can't go there and breathe and think that we're going to live. The atmosphere is totally different there. Go to any of the other planets. If we were able to make it to every one of the planets of our solar system, we'd realize that we would still need to have a spacesuit and oxygen to protect us from the pressures of the atmospheres of those particular planets. Earth is totally different. Isn't it significant that God said when He created everything, He created the heavens and the earth. And then, of course, as we see the foundations being set, it's with purpose, so that people who are made in the image of God can live on this earth. So, notice in verse 8 that God called the firmament heaven. Now the Bible actually refers to three heavens. And there are many verses that we'll, we'll, be, we'll be coming back to this thought again later. But, but, the, but the Bible refers to three heavens. The first that we'll have to consider would be the atmospheric heaven, which uh, would be that with, within the confines of this breathable atmosphere of earth. Jeremiah 4.25 mentions the word heaven in that way. I beheld, and lo, there was no man, and all the birds of the heavens were fled. Well, what heavens would that be? That would be the heavens of the atmosphere surrounding the earth, because birds need the breathable air of that atmosphere to live as well. And then there is another heaven that is mentioned. We would consider it as beyond that breathable atmosphere, which we would call space. And we do call space. And, uh, and, and so, by the way, remember that when God created in the first day the heavens and the earth, He created both uh, matter and space. And space in itself has some sense of matter as well, even though, you know, it's, it's out there, but, non- but nonetheless. Uh, that is the next area called heaven. 
and Isaiah refers to that in verses, uh, Isaiah 13, verse 10, where it says, For the stars of heaven and the constellations thereof shall not give their light. The sun shall be darkened and is going forth, and the moon shall not cause their light to shine. So where those heavenly bodies are, and for us that is every heavenly body outside of our atmosphere, that is called a heaven as well, or mentioned as heavens. But then there is the heaven of God's throne. Some people call it the celestial heaven, or heaven that has to do with uh, the, the place where God is. Uh, Hebrews 9 verse 24 says, For Christ has not entered into the holy places made with hands, which are the figures of the truth, but into heaven itself. So we know that it's not about our breathable atmosphere or space where the sun and the moon and stars is. It has to be then that third heaven, as Paul refers to it in 2 Corinthians, uh, which, again, we'll get back to in another time. But into heaven itself now to appear in the presence of God for us. Why? Because he's our intercessor. And uh, so that has to be in the very presence of the throne of God. So there are three heavens then that we have touched upon. Now, the waters under this atmosphere, getting back to that firmament, the waters under this atmosphere, the firmament, uh, which is our atmosphere, uh, are the watery matrix of matter God created. The waters above are a vapor, or we could even say an ice canopy, as it were, but it's more, more than likely vapor. Many scientists believe one surrounded and protected the earth, both creationists and evolutionists. But uh, Dr. Henry Morris in his book called The Genesis Record, uh, says that this idea of a vapor or some kind of an ice canopy appears you know, in many ancient writings, but he doesn't take his, his lead from those. But, but, he, but he makes some interesting insights into this vapor that would surround the earth and uh, listing some of the benefits of such a canopy. Well, he first of all says that the canopy would serve as a sort of global greenhouse, maintaining a uniform, pleasant, warm temperature all over the earth. Remember now that God creates all things good, and when He created the earth, He created it to be in a perfect form. So even after He separated the waters from the waters, that uh, uh, with a breathable atmosphere, everything was still in a condition where all things would be temperate, all things would be at a, at, at a right, at, at the perfect temperature, at the perfect atmospheric, uh, barometric pressure and all. So it was a perfect greenhouse. Now we've all been in greenhouses, I think. Or you Maybe even some of you might have some greenhouses. Some of you may have lived in a greenhouse, like in the south, uh, uh, where it's always hot and humid, <laughs> like a greenhouse. But if you go into a greenhouse, you realize it is humid. There is, uh, it, it, the, the atmosphere in those greenhouses are made for the purpose of growing and keeping plants at a constant uh, rate and, uh, and all. Secondly, he would say that uh, the, the next benefit is that with nearly uniform temperatures, great air movements would be inhibited and there would be no windstorms. Now, we would love that here in El Paso. But the fact is, when you have this perfect kind of condition, then there are no windstorms. So, really, again, it, 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 it speaks of, of a perfect world. Thirdly, the combination of warm temperature and adequate moisture everywhere would be conducive to lush vegetation all over the earth with no barren deserts or ice caps. Again, that would seem to be the ideal. But in God's view, it was the perfect place. 
a vapor or ice canopy, uh, fourthly, a vapor or ice canopy would effectively filter out any harmful radiation from the sun or other astronomical bodies in space. We've often heard in the last 20, 30, 40 years, the, uh, the, the disintegration of the ozone layer of our earth and our planet and you know, causing a lot of environmental concerns and whatnot. Well, God's still in control of all of that, but, but, but it, it is something that we need to consider, you know, because we're not in a perfect world anymore because of sin. I don't want to get ahead of myself, but that's why it's hot in the summer, it's cold in the winter. Yeah, you all always let us know that. In here, you know, because it's too cold in the summer. It's too hot in the winter. It's hot right now, I'll tell you right now, but I'm not taking my coat off. Because I'm, I'm here to suffer with you. Okay. Lastly, and there are many other points, but lastly, these waters above in the vapor ice canopy would provide part of the reservoir from which God would eventually send the great flood of Noah's day or precipitate the flood of Noah's day. Remember that I said that God did everything good. But even when judgment had to come, it was for good. But God in raising the clouds, as it were, in terms of sheer mechanical engineering. Now, you might be a mechanical engineer here, anybody? Or studied it, maybe? Okay. Well, I was hoping, you know, but it's okay. Because I need you to check me out. I just, but, but I'm thinking, when I, when I think in, in, in these terms, that when God raised the cloud or that vapor, that, that, you know, the waters above the waters, as it were, in terms of sheer mechanical engineering, He did a work on the second day which was... I could only say astounding. Astounding. Because I want you to hear this. According to scientific studies, the amount of vapor continually suspended in the air above us right now is estimated at 54,460,000,000,000 tons. Think about that for just a moment. That's a whole lot of zeros. 54,460,000,000,000 tons. That is the weight of the amount of vapor continually suspended in the air above us. Remember, there was much more at the time of creation. Water is 773 times the weight of air, so that gives us some idea of the power required to separate the waters from the waters. Because then... There was much more waters above the waters than there are today. And then consider the annual precipitation in the form of rain and snow which falls upon the earth is equivalent of 186,000 cubic miles, enough to cover the entire earth to a depth of three feet. So what would happen without another process? Because you see, the supply of water above the earth, how is it maintained? It's maintained by evaporation. The constant lifting of water from the earth into the atmosphere by the power of the sun. May I say to you today that we all take these things for granted. 
about this for just a moment. Have you ever just thanked God for the air that you breathe? Have you ever just thanked God for the water that you drink? For the food that you eat? Pizzas included. (laughs) Have you ever just thanked God that He holds all things together by the word of His power? We take too much for granted. When I thought of this and when I read this and I thought how God just spread out and and, and separated the waters from the waters. And you know, the Bible tells us He did two things. Well, His creation process is actually threefold. We'll talk about the third one later. But in in this passage, 6 through 8, in verse... Verse 6, we know that he spoke something into existence, right? And God said, let the waters be separated. Well, then it tells us here as well in verse 7 that he made the firmament using the word Azah. And we talked about that a couple of weeks ago. Barah means what? He created out of nothing when he speaks everything into existence. But Azah, A-S-A-H, in the Hebrew, or Azah, means that he forms. So he took what he created and began to stretch it out. It's an amazing thing what God did in creation. We don't need to take these things for granted. And even when we know that the waters above the firmament will be, conde- uh, you know, it will be as we, we go on in the study of Genesis, there will be condensed and precipitated at the flood later on. That God will even restore them. Do you know that God is going to restore those waters in the millennial earth and in the new earth that the Lord will create? Think about this. Turn to Psalm 148. Think about this for just a moment. Psalm 148, verse 4. Praise Him, ye ye heavens of heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. What does that describe? What we've just seen God create. Praise Him, ye heavens of the heavens, and ye waters that be above the heavens. Let them praise the name of the Lord, for He commanded and they were created. He has also established them forever and ever. He has made a decree which shall not pass. In other words, it will continue. This decree will not go away. It tells us that what may have been precipitated because of the sin of man. And over a good period of time, as it were, because we realize that sin began at the fall in chapter 3. Later on when we meet Noah, you know, God has still been somewhat merciful because we saw what? We saw man living for upwards of 690 years, even more than that. Because of that atmosphere. 
Little by little, it was going away. But nonetheless, we, we saw the, the dates of people living and then all of a sudden it started getting shorter and shorter and shorter. All because of the effects of sin. But they would have lived how long? Long, long time. But he will establish those waters again in the new earth. Because the Bible says that the Lord is going to create a new heaven and a new earth where righteousness dwells. And there, once again, it will be just as it was in that day. So in conclusion and for review, verse 6 records the decree that made it happen. Verse 6 of Genesis 1. Then God said, let there be a firmament in the midst of the waters and let it divide the waters from the waters. Verse 7 reiterates the process in order to show that precisely what He ordered is what happened. And God made the firmament and divided the waters which were under the firmament from the waters which were above the firmament and it was so. So verse 7 is what reiterates the process and then says it came to, to be. Why? Because God said so. Notice that this is specifically described as a creative act accomplished by decree from God. It wasn't a natural process that occurred spontaneously through long natural processes. On day two, God was still employing creative power in ways and proportions way beyond our capacity to understand. Can you understand the awesomeness of God? I don't think any of us can. So does this need an explanation? No. What it takes is faith to believe that God can do all of these things in six days' time and each specific day, 24 hours a day. And don't worry about that at the end of this day's record in verse 8. That there is no mention that what God did was good. Some people have asked, well, why does it say here, that, uh, why does it not say that God did something good? Because everything that God does is good. But there is a, this is a significant omission here, folks, because it doesn't mean that the work was not good. It just means that the stage of creation that began on day two wasn't really complete until day three when the dry land emerged from the water and the earth was made fit for living things. Remember, the foundation is three days. So putting day two and day three together, when all of that then as the foundation was completed, then he said, that's good. So don't worry that this day doesn't have a mention of good because God does everything good. So, the evening and the morning were the second day. I want to conclude here with Psalm 136, verses 1 through 9. As you're turning there, Psalm 136, I I want you to know something. That God alone is awesome. When we think of all of these things that God does, we cannot apply that word awesome to anything or anyone other than God. I think many of us have had to change our, 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 our usage of the word awesome. We used to say, man, that football team is awesome. That pizza is awesome. thought I'd bring that back up. I hope I haven't made anybody hungry because I, I know they have enchiladas over there and they would not want me to send you all to get pizza. 
We think of things or people as awesome. No, only God is awesome. Because the word awe has to do with how great He is and how great He creates and how great He does the things that He does and how good He does them. Only God is awesome and the things that He does perfectly are awesome. Only God. That's why in verse 1 of Psalm 136 says, Oh, give thanks unto the Lord, for He is good, for His mercy endures forever. Oh, give thanks unto the God of gods, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, give thanks to the Lord of lords, for His mercy endureth forever. To Him alone, to Him who alone doeth great wonders. That's what we've been studying. For His mercy endureth forever. To Him that by wisdom made the heavens, as we studied in Proverbs 8. For His mercy endureth forever. To Him that stretched out the earth above the waters, for His mercy endureth forever. To Him that made great lights, for His mercy endureth forever. The sun to rule by day, for His mercy endureth forever. The moon and stars to rule by night, for His mercy endureth forever. Oh, this is what we ought to be doing, folks, because of what we're learning in the book of Genesis, is that even for what God did thousands of years ago, By the way, you notice that thousands of years ago, not billions of years ago, what God did thousands of years ago, we should be praising Him for it. Praise Him. Praise Him for what He's done in your life. And you know when it says, for His mercy endures forever? forever, That's His mercies. Mercies. And those mercies are still good today. When we fall, guess what? We need His mercies. When we struggle, we need His mercies. When we're loaded down with guilt and sin and shame, we need His mercies and God is good to give us His mercies. But we then have to change our hearts because He's an awesome God. And if this God can do what, he, what, he, what it says here in Genesis, then I say we bow to Him and to Him alone. Let's pray.